other missionary kids and I went with some missionaries down to Osaka, a few hours south of Tokyo, and to do some evangelistic rallies for Japanese high school kids. And so we passed out tracts, invited Japanese teenagers to the rallies, and then at the rallies, we'd sing some songs, um, we'd have a testimony or two, and then one of the missionaries or Japanese church leaders would preach the gospel. And on one evening, I was asked to give my testimony, and so I gave it in English, and it was translated into Japanese. So I shared how I had prayed to receive Christ as my Savior as a child, age seven or nine or something like that, and that I knew that my sins are forgiven and that I'm going to heaven. And then the translator added, um, I, I wasn't good enough in Japanese to give my testimony in Japanese, but I was good enough to understand what he was saying after I spoke in English. And he added, and now I have peace and joy in my life in Japanese. And that amused me. I thought, now, why did he add something I didn't say? It bothered me a little bit that he would add something I didn't say. But what really bothered me is it wasn't true. And that's why I didn't say it. I didn't have peace and joy in my life. And that bothered, that bothered me. And so during there in the spring of my senior year, I remember it was more of a, probably a wishful thought. It, it wasn't a specific prayer, but just thinking, Lord, when I, I was going to finish high school and return to the States at the end of the summer to come back for college. Said, when I, at the end of the summer, when I go back for college, I want to be excited about you. I want this to be real in my heart, not just head knowledge growing up like many of us in a Christian home. And so sort of a wishful half prayer, I guess. But the Lord did some really wonderful things in my life that some were, some were just through more time in the Word and quiet time. Some was through Oswald Chambers, my utmost for his highest, which the Lord used greatly. Uh, one of my brothers, what, what he was learning in his walk with the Lord, and then Bible camp that summer. And at the end of uh, Bible camp, um, just praying with uh, one of my brothers and another counselor and Sort of a Romans 12.1, I urge you, brothers, to present your lives as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God. And this, the Lord's calling me. I, am, am I going to go full go or just sort of half in with him? And uh, the Lord used that to draw me to say, Lord, I, I, I want to go full go. And it wasn't like a second blessing that moves you to a higher stage of playing that you live in the rest of your life. It was just another step in my walk with the Lord um, of realizing there are things I know up here that I'm not experiencing here. I want them to be real. Anybody relate to that? Uh, maybe we all relate to that because <laughs> we all know there are things up here that aren't happening down here, right? And one, one of the first things that happened for me was just, grow, just gaining some emotional stability. I think my life as a teenager was uh, somewhat like a roller coaster. Um, you know, if the girl I liked smiled at me, man, everything was great. And if she ignored me, you're in the pits for three days. And I mean, just up and down through high school and just spending a little more time, well, more regular time in the Word, realizing how much God loved me, began to give me just a stability in my life and knowing His love for me a fresh desire for the word and a desire to obey. And, of course, it's been far from perfect. Um, you all know me well enough to know that. Uh, but 
But it's just one of those things. And then there have been other seasons since then of realizing, Lord, there are things I'm knowing that I'm not walking. Would you, would you do something in my heart to make these things real? And realize, I, you can't turn it on, right? You can't just flip a switch and make it happen. It's a work the Lord has to do in us. And this morning, as we go back to my, our intermittent study in Ephesians here, um, we're looking at a prayer that Paul gives in praise at the end of chapter 1 for the Ephesian Christians. And so if you'll open your Bibles there at Ephesians chapter 1, we're going to look at that prayer. And it comes after he has spoken of all of our spiritual blessings in Christ in, in verses 3 to 14. And we're, we're going to read from verses 3 all the way to verse 19. But if you remember those spiritual blessings that Paul iterates, there are six of them. And he says, we've been chosen to be holy. We've been predestined to be adopted. We've been redeemed, forgiven of all our sins because Christ has shed his blood for us. God has given us, he's given us the inside scoop on his plan to wrap everything up, all of history up in Christ. He has claimed us as his inheritance, his treasured possession. And then he's sealed and secured us with his Holy Spirit. So those are some of those six blessings. So let's read in, in Ephesians 1 from verse 3. We'll read 3 to 14 and then look at Paul's prayer in verses 15 to 19 this morning. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then he lists them out. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Which, which grace he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things or to sum up all things in him, in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Won't that be something when we have a ruler who wraps all things up together in righteousness and unity? We look forward to that. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance or we've been made an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then the final blessing. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee or the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire a possession of it to the praise of his glory. And now Paul's prayer. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, 
having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And we'll stop there and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to just repeat Paul's prayer here in verse 17 and 18 and ask that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him and that our eyes would be enlightened. Father, there are so many things we read in your word or we have a sense of, of knowing them and yet we want to experience them in our walk with you. So would you do your work today? In that. And Lord, in these next weeks, change us. Change us by the power of your Spirit to experience in our walk with you the things that we are learning in our heads. For your glory and our joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in this um, prayer in verses 15 through, the whole prayer is verses 15 to 23. Uh, but looking at verses 15 to 19 right now, we could just a simple outline. Of the prayer. So verses 15 and 16 are sort of an introduction prayer. And if we read that again, Paul says, For this reason, and I think he's looking back for this reason of everything I just said in verses 3 to 14. For this reason, and because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And so when Paul heard about the Ephesians, of their faith in the Lord Jesus and their love for the saints, he knew that what he had said in verses 3 to 14 had really happened to them. It was evident. They had been born again. There was the evidence of the reality of Christ in their life. So he knew what I wrote in verses 3 to 14 is true. So for that reason, he said, I'm praying. And then in verses 17 and 18, we have his general request. And then verses in 18b through 19, the specific content, those three things. But his general request in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And then specifically, the specific content in the rest of 18 and beginning of 19, those three things, that you may know the hope of his calling, the wealth of his inheritance, and the surpassing greatness, the immeasurable greatness of his power. We probably won't get to those three things this morning. Uh, We'll get to that sometime in the future. But immediately, when we look at verses 15, 16, 17, some questions arise And so here's one of them. If if verses 3 to 14 are certain and sure, if God has done this for all believers, which he has, right? Why does Paul pray this prayer in verse 15 to 19? Why does he pray that they will know what he's just told them in verses 3 to 14? Doesn't verses 3 to 14 give us everything we need to know about those things? Why does he pray for it? What do we need more than what we've already read or heard or listened to in those verses? Well, the answer to those questions, I believe, lies in the two little phrases in verses 17 and 18. At the end of verse 17, it says, in the knowledge of him. And then in the middle of verse 18, that you may know 
So Paul wants a deeper knowledge, right? And again, I think we, but we already knew those things, right? We already know this. We already heard it preached. We read it. We've thought about it. So what is it that Paul is praying for? Well, I think we do know that there's, there's a difference between knowing and knowing, right? And to some, but that, that's intuitive. There are different kinds of knowing. And when we think about in, in the scripture, so here's one kind of knowing God. Mark one twenty four, Jesus in the synagogue and is, is confronts a man possessed with a demon. And the demon through the man says, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Demon knowledge, true. But I don't think that's what Jesus or what Paul is talking about, right? So we don't want just the demon knowledge. Or Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about, about men who have suppressed the truth because what can be known about God is plain to everybody, right? When we look at creation, it's plain to everybody. But although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. And while that characterizes non-believers, what Paul is talking about, who have rejected God, isn't it true? In some way that can also characterize us, right? We can know things about God and yet not honor him for those things. We don't want that kind of knowledge. We don't want it just up here. We don't want just information knowledge. That's not what Paul is praying for, right? With no relationship, no personal connection to the God of the universe. Some of you think about professors or people who have gotten their PhDs in New Testament or Old Testament, and yet they don't even believe half or a third of what they're studying and wonder, why in the world would you invest your life in something you don't believe? But that's, that's part of the heart of sinful. That's part of our own dull hearts, right? We can, we can know things and yet not really believe them. So that's one kind of knowing, merely information, but little or no relationship. Here's another kind of knowing. And just think about a couple of these passages. These may be very familiar for you. So Psalm 1-6, at the end of Psalm 1, it says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. He knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, it isn't saying that he doesn't know about the wicked people. He only knows about righteous people. I mean, God knows everybody and everything, right? But when when he knows the way of the righteous, he said, I have a relationship, a commitment, a bond with the righteous. This knowing is a relational, personal thing, right? That he's talking about there in Psalm 1-6. Or in Amos 3, verse 2, he says to the Israelites, you only have I known among all the families of the earth. But God knows everybody. He knows the Egyptians. He knows the Canaanites. He knows, he knows everybody, right? So he's not talking about mere information, just knowing the people. He's saying, you only have I known. You are the people I have chosen. In fact, some of our translations render that word know in that way. You only have I chosen. Because it's a relational knowledge. It's a personal knowledge, Right? In John chapter 10, when Jesus is talking about himself as the good shepherd, and these are precious verses to us, aren't they? And he says, I am the good shepherd. 
I know my own, and my own know me. He's talking about you there. I know my own. They know me. Then he says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So that knowing there is a very intimate, personal, relational knowledge. In John 17, in his prayer, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is a relationship, knowing God the Father and Jesus Christ. A personal, it's, it, it certainly involves information about him. We can't have a relationship if there's no truth in information. But it's information and truth that leads to a personal relationship, to know God personally. What an amazing, amazing thing that is. So the, the, so the, the knowledge Paul is talking about that he's praying for is deeper than just being able to spit back or regurgitate the six spiritual blessings is expressed in Ephesians chapter 1, right? It's a relational knowledge. It's a personal knowledge, a deeper knowledge. Let me give you an illustration of this. If you go back 40 years with me to 1983, and there is an event at Northside United Methodist Church. It was something on the calendar on May 21st, 1983. Now, for some people, the knowledge of that event was just mere information, an event to attend. They had it on their calendar check. Let's go do this. For others, it was probably a burden for the janitor who had to show up and clean the place, a burden. For some, perhaps, it was even a point of debate or contention because they didn't think I should have been such a lucky guy on that day. But for me, this event on May 21st, 1983, it was neither mere information nor an obligation to be fulfilled or any contention because for me, it was hope joy, delight, and anticipation. It colored practically every waking moment of the previous five months in my life because on that date, I was going to marry the most wonderful girl in the world, the object of my deepest affection. No mere information, right? It's relational. It's knowing. I just had to get that illustration in here. But there's something, I think, if we think about our closest relationships, they involve, they, they involve information, but they are far more than information, right? There's, there's, there are things you can't even express or put your finger on. But that's what God wants for us in our relationship with him. Far more than mere information. But oftentimes, I wonder if we don't We know that in all our other friendships and relationships, but do we forget that about our relationship with God at times? And we treat it like a checklist. I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. God should be pretty pleased with me today. Did I get my brownie points? So we forget what we we normally naturally know in all our other relationships when it comes to the God of the universe. Now Paul describes this knowing that he's praying for as having the eyes of our hearts enlightened there in verse 18. Now, what does that mean? Do our hearts have eyes? Now, it's obviously a metaphor. 
Why does he say eyes of our hearts instead of eyes of our mind or understanding? Because we often use that metaphor, right? In fact, we're talking with someone, and then we'll say, oh, I see. You see? Well, yeah, because we're expressing, I understand, I see. So we talk about eyes of our minds. But here Paul says eyes of our hearts. What might he be getting at? Perhaps by the eyes of our hearts, he's saying, I'm not just talking about understanding or grasping something intellectually, but seeing with our hearts to value something, to treasure something, to embrace something, to love something. Surely this is what Paul is after when he says the eyes of our hearts being enlightened. He wants us to hear verses 3 to 14 and not just be able to regurgitate those six blessings and list them off, election, predestination, redemption, sealing, etc. He wants the eyes of our hearts to sparkle with delight and affection when we think about the fact that God the Father in eternity past set his love on me. You say that he set his love on on you. He adopted you to be his beloved child. That will do good for you for a while to think about it, won't it? To think God set his affection on me. Jesus Christ loved me so much that he was willing to shed his blood to go to the cross for my sins and pay the penalty for all of them. And because I've been united to Jesus, God has claimed me, of all people, me, to be part of his inheritance. Go figure. Who can that be? But when we think about, doesn't that stir your heart? Doesn't that say, God, you are, you are amazing. Okay, this isn't a Sunday school answer anymore. This is life. This is delight. This is joy. And God has marked me as his own. He has marked you as his own by giving you his Holy Spirit as a seal, a mark of his ownership, and a down payment guarantee that one day in the future, he will complete everything he has promised to do for you. Everything he has promised, he will do it. And that's what the Holy Spirit in your life means. And so he wants our affections to rise and soar with anticipation of our great wedding day with him when we finally see Jesus face to face or in his presence. That day will make May 21st, 1983 like a shadow, just a blip on the horizon in light of seeing Jesus, our glorious Savior face to face, the wedding supper of the Lamb. That's how Paul wants us to respond to these truths, right? One long, that's how he responds. One long sentence here in verses 3 to 14. He, he's just, he can't pick up his pencil because he just keeps, there's too much, there's too much overwhelming for the glory of your grace, Father, he says. And his heart is full of praise. And that's what that passage, that's the effect that passage should have on each of our hearts. And that's what Paul is praying for. But that's often not our experience, is it? Often not our response. Sometimes my sort of a shrug, you know, I already know that stuff. I heard this preached last week or two weeks ago. 
before. I heard John Piper preach on this passage, you know, or whatever it is that we can tell ourselves. You know, it's all theological doctrine. Give me something practical to help me in my daily life. Um, I don't have time to dig in that. I got too many podcasts to listen to. Um, so maybe let, let's just confess at the start that none of us are where we should be in this, right? We're often characterized by hearts that are cold, distracted, dull. We hear stuff and realize, and it's, it's falling like, just bouncing off, bouncing off, no impact on me. But that's why Paul's praying for this, because we need help in this, don't we? We need the Holy Spirit's help. Young people and adults too, who are, who are two or three famous people that if you had the chance, you'd love to spend some time with and get to know? And I, I, I don't know who it is for you. A movie star, you know, I don't know. Do you want Dwayne The Rock Johnson or Matt Damon or Kate Blanchett? Who, who do you want to spend time with? Maybe it's an athlete, Steph Curry, Patrick Mahomes, Ronald Lacuna. Who, who, who would... What would, who would amaze you, I mean, just to no end, if you got a call this afternoon and it was their agent or maybe them calling up and saying, hey, I'm sending you a ticket. I want you to fly out, spend a weekend with me, and just, we'll just hang out together. And wouldn't, wouldn't that be, you, 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 tell, or you think who it is for you. That would be amazing, wouldn't it? Brothers and sisters, do, do we realize who is calling us and inviting us every day to get to know him. It's the glorious almighty God of the universe, the eternal, all-loving, heavenly Father. And he's not inviting us for a little two-minute backstage meet the star greeting and then he'll forget about us forever. But he's inviting us to a glorious relationship that will last forever throughout all eternity. He's the God who is so powerful that he created billions of galaxies, each with billions of stars, simply by speaking the word. He is so creative, and, and he loves beauty, and we see that every day in the flowers or the trees, or you think about, think about all the flavors that we enjoy. He could have made everything to be, taste like cardboard, but he didn't. All the colors that we see, the beauty of music, amazing. He's the God who one day will reverse the curse and rid the universe of all the evil and brokenness that we see and that we grieve over today. He will make all things new. He's the God who gave up his beloved son for you to bring you into a relationship with him, to pay the penalty that we owe to him. And he said, I'm going to pay that at the cost of my son so that he could forgive us and accept us into his family forever. And that God, that God is inviting you into a personal relationship with him. One in which you will be fully known and fully loved and accepted. Let me ask us another question. And this one is not to scold us, but it's just to help us to respond as we should. So in which way would you say, in which way do you know God? Is it mostly merely information? And I can answer the questions in Sunday school. The answer is usually Jesus, right? 
I can answer the questions. Would that characterize your knowledge of God? Or is it growing and personal and relational and intimate? Sometimes we can know about him and it just sort of bores us, right? Maybe even we know a lot and we're stiff-arming him. But the second kind, the relational knowledge, and Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter 3 when he says, whatever gain I had, and there, there was a time in Paul's life when it was not personal and relational, right? He, boy, he knew more than anybody in, of his day of the Old Testament scriptures, Pharisee of the Pharisee, and yet he had no personal relationship with God. Then he comes to know Christ and he says, whatever gain I had, I count as loss. For the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish and I, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. And the power is resurrection, and he may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul said, nothing else matters other than gaining Christ and knowing him in this personal, relational way. He's worth everything. It was no longer information for Paul, right? This was his treasure. This was his delight. This was his joy to know Jesus, to know Christ. And children, you don't need to be 36 to know God in this way. You don't even need to be 16. Whatever age you are, you can begin to know God personally and closely the way Paul is praying here. This isn't about how much we know at this point, how much knowledge we have at this point about God. It's about treasuring Him and rejoicing whatever we know to embrace that about Him. And to, and to treasure that and say, Lord, I, I want to know you personally. I want to grow in this. So that was point one. Points two and three will be quicker here. But point one, point one was, is there a difference between knowing and knowing? Or what's the difference? And we know there is a difference, right? Point number two, why does it matter? What difference does it make if my knowledge about God is only the first kind? Well, there are two answers to that. One answer is it could be the, a matter of heaven and hell if all it is is up here. It could be that. Second answer, it's definitely a matter of sanctification. So the first one, this could be a matter of he heaven or hell, and I hope that's not the case for anyone here, but it could be. Remember, the demons knew a lot about God. They knew a lot of truth about Jesus. But you know where they're going. They hated him. They didn't treasure him. Jesus warns us in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, you remember what he said? I never knew you. I never knew you. Jesus knew all about him. But he said, 
Never had a relationship with you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. So it's possible, possible to have a lot of information up here about God, about Christ, and not, and not know him, right? Have no relationship with him. I pray that that situation will not remain for anyone here at Sovereign Grace Church. But a second answer to the question, what difference does it make, is that it has everything to do with our walk with Christ, our growth in sanctification, our increasing victory over sin. So think about the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to Ephesians, and you probably know two parts, right? Chapters 1 to 3 and chapters 4 to 6. Chapters 1 to 3 are more doctrinal about our riches in Christ, God's work of grace in us. Chapters 4 to 6 are more about our responsibilities in Christ, our walk in grace. So the first half is more doctrine. The second half, something we say is more duty, practical outworking. And Paul's letter to the Romans is the same way. Chapters 1 to 11, doctrinal. Chapter 12 to 16, the practical outworking. And so in Ephesians, chapters 1 to 3 come before chapters 4 to 6 for a very deliberate reason. It's not just that Paul wanted to get doctrine out of the way so we can get to the important stuff. No, the reason Paul starts with these doctrinal truths, these great truths about what God has done for us and our blessings is Christ, and then is praying for us to know that is because comprehending and embracing and treasuring these things is absolutely critical if we are to progress in the Christian life. It's absolutely critical to understand these things about what God has done for us if we're going to grow in our walk with Christ. Later on in chapters 4 to 6, Paul is going to instruct us about things like unity and forgiveness, about purity and holiness, about marriage and parenting, being a teenager or a younger child under your parents' authority, how to be a good employee. But Paul knows, husbands, that you and I will never be able to effectively love our wives and lead them the way Christ calls us to in chapter 5 if we don't embrace how God has loved us in chapters 1 and 2. We can't be chapter 5 unless we embrace chapters 1 and 2. We'll never be the kind of employees we should be, especially when we've got a difficult boss, as Paul talks about in chapter 6, if we don't, if the eyes of our hearts haven't been lightened to the glorious riches God has blessed us with in Christ. We won't be able to be patient and humble, forgiving and forbearing, gracious in our speech, kind and tender-hearted, all the things Paul talks about in chapters 4 to 6, if we aren't first amazed and moved by the grace of God that has been lavished on us. The Apostle Peter expresses this connection between knowing God and our growing in God in this way. And he says in 2 Peter chapter 1, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us to, his, to us his precious and very great promises that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. You see how that works? It's through the knowledge of God, through growing in what he has done for us, understanding of him, that we change, that our lives are changed. 
We can't disregard this and think, I'm just going to go to the practical stuff. It doesn't work that way. Pastor Max Sanders writes this, if we don't see ourselves as beloved children of God, chosen in him before the foundation of the world and adopted into his heavenly family, if we don't see ourselves as the object of the cosmic affections and attentions of the creator of the universe, redeemed, forgiven, and rich, sealed, and secure, if we don't see ourselves as holy and righteous beings destined for glory above, we won't act like it. That's why Paul began his letter assuring us that these things are true, and that's why he prays for us these things in verses 17 and 18. So now point number three, how do we grow to know God in this personal and experiential relational way? Well, our text here in Ephesians 1 gives us four parts to answer this question. How do we grow in knowing God? And the four parts are born again, the Holy Spirit, life in the word, and prayer. And I'll fill these out a little bit. But born again, life in, or the work of the Holy Spirit, life in the word, and prayer. Look at verse 17 in the beginning of verse 18, where Paul says that the praise that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation, the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. The first thing that must happen if we are no God in this way is we've got to be born again. You must be born again, Jesus said. And you ask, where, where do you get that from this passage? I'm pretty sure that that's what is meant when Paul says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened at Venus, verse, verse 18. And probably a better rendering of that is the eyes of your heart having been enlightened. It's a perfect passive participle. And so what God, Paul is doing is speaking of something that has happened to them already. The eyes of your hearts having been enlightened. It's probably pointing back to verse 13 where, where Paul said, when you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And he may also be referring to what he explains in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You remember where Paul says in verse 4, Our gospel is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They're blind. They can't see. Their eyes are blind. They can't see the light of the glory of Christ. But then Paul goes on in verse 6 and says, But God who said, Let light shine in darkness, back in Genesis 1, He is the one who has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's the new birth when He does that for us. He shines in our It's a new creation. So that opens our eyes so that we can see the beauty and glory of Christ. And so if you have not been born again, cry out to God do, to do that miracle in your heart. You, you can't do it yourself. Only God can do that miracle. But he loves that prayer. When we cry out in desperation, God, would you do for me that I can't do? I need to be born again. Cry out for that. Secondly, so we've got to be born again. The secondly, it's only by the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. So when Paul prays in verse 17 that God will give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit 
working in us to open our minds and hearts to receive these truths as more than mere information. Again, we all know we can read the Bible. We can spend a lot of time in this and it hardly get through, right? We need the Holy Spirit's help. So ask him. Ask him, Lord, open my eyes. Give me your wisdom. Give me your insights so that I can see and know. Thirdly, is we need a rich life in the word. We've got to spend time in God's word. When Paul refers to the spirit of revelation there, he's not referring to the Holy Spirit giving us new revelation out in the woods somewhere in your shower when you're, suddenly he zaps you with insight. He's talking about the revelation that he's already given us. So this is probably more the idea. So he's, the Holy Spirit has revealed this and then what he does through illumination in each of our hearts, right? When we are reading his word and asking, Lord, help, help me to grasp this. Help me to embrace this. We need his work. And, but we've got to be in the word for that. It's not going to happen out in the woods. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Paul wrote the Colossians. So live in it, brothers and sisters. Feed on it. And I know for some of you, and particularly for moms, I know it is tough finding time. It's almost 24-7, right, when you are constantly on the go. But ask your husband, ask your kids. I just say, I, I need some time. I need 15 minutes to pull away. Send them to the rooms for the nap or whatever, but find time regularly. We all need to do this. And, and Let's face it, every one of us wastes more than 15 times scrolling on our stupid phones every day, right? We can find time. We need help. We need help. But we can find time to spend in God's work. He's invited. The God of the universe says, I want to spend time with you. Are we going to tell him, no, I'm too busy? Yet sadly, I do that. No, I'm busy looking at stupid stuff on my phone. Find time. Let's live in God's word and feed on it. And then fourthly, pray. Let's pray Paul's prayer here. And Chris, if you and the band will come back up. Pray this prayer that Paul prays. Ask your Heavenly Father, would you please give me the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that I'll have a heart to understand and receive and embrace these wonderful truths in your word. Pray for your spouse. Pray for your kids. Pray for your friends. Lord, soften our cold, dull Dry hearts. Give me a new heart as you promise in Ezekiel 36, 26. Remove my hard, stony heart. Give me a soft heart. Cause me to walk in your ways. Let's pray that way, brothers and sisters. And then let's remember, growth like this doesn't happen in a microwave. It's not pop it in and 30 seconds or 30 minutes later, we're changed. It's little by little, incremental. But God is for you, brothers and sisters. Knowing him more deeply and personally is his idea, not ours. He's the one inviting us in. We're not trying to twist his arm to spend time with us. He's the one initiating because that's what he made us for, to know him. That's where our joy will come, knowing him. That's what brings him glory when we know him and delight ourselves in him. And that's eternal life, to know God and Jesus Christ. We're going to close our service by singing once again, He will hold me fast. And when we get to verse 2, ask yourself, do I really believe this?
Do I really believe that those he saves are his delight? Do you believe that? Do you believe that if he has saved you, you are his delight, that you are precious in his sight? Do you believe that he'll never let your soul be lost because he has purchased it at such a cost? He's not going to lose what he paid, the life of his son, the blood of his son to purchase. Do you believe that for your life, Jesus bled and died? That justice has been satisfied for you, all your sin has been paid for? will never be demanded. You will never be demanded of to pay again. It has been satisfied. And you that one day he will raise you to endless life when your faith will be turned to sight when he comes at last. Let's sing this not just with, the, with the, our mouths and with the eyes of our heads. Let's sing this song with the eyes of our hearts to treasure and embrace and love our, our Savior and our Heavenly Father. Let's stand.